Okay, so here's a question for you. Do you worry about leaving your cameras in the car when it's hot? So I'm in Arizona right now, and it happens to be quite hot. And I'm always paranoid about, especially, you know, an older camera that the oil's going to run and mess things up if it gets too hot. Uh, I mean, cooking the film's another issue, but mostly I worry about cameras. So I know you like to carry, carry only one camera with you, which means you sometimes leave them in the car. And what do you do about that? I, I And it, it, the philosophy, or at least the way that I look at it, is that a small exposure is not going to be a big deal. Uh, it's the repeated continual exposure. So, um, yeah, so I usually do have a car, a, a car in my camera. Yes. I have a camera in my car at almost all times. Um, and, and I will leave them in my, ca- in my car. Um, but then I rotate them out. So that sounds good. Yeah. yeah. So I'll go a couple weeks with one camera, a couple weeks with the next camera. And maybe I'm ruining them as I go. I don't know. Uh, I haven't no, you had would too know. much trouble. I think you would know. And I and it occurred to me when I thought about this that the, the which way is up might matter. So if the problem is oil migrating from where it's supposed to be to where it isn't supposed to be, it makes sense to me that maybe if, if your camera's upright, the oil is going to tend to go from top to bottom of a lens instead of traveling from, you know, zone where it belongs. Oh, to yeah. Well, you've got a good belong, point there. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, depending on the design, but usually... What you want to avoid is the you know oil getting on the leaves of shutter or aperture, and it's most likely to do that if the camera's sitting you know lens down, for instance, you know. Right. Um, well, I have so. I have um, uh, on the uh, okay. I drive a Toyota Rav Four, and just in front on the center console, just in front of the shifting apparatus, um, there is a little square tray and that little square tray is just the size of you know your standard travel pocket rangefinder that i love so much and talk about ad nauseum and uh so uh, usually the camera is sitting on its back in in that location so uh yeah so maybe maybe i do need to start sitting it upright or setting it up although the case maybe although that's yeah, that sounds like you have the vulnerable blades uppermost, though, and the oil is going to run back into the body of the camera instead of down into the blade. So you might be doing it exact exactly right. Yeah, good good point. I hadn't really thought about it a whole lot. Um, I do have that, you know, I I have the the rule where you know I I don't leave it in there for 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 very long. So um, so yeah, I haven't I have not seen a whole lot of oil on the blade issue. In fact, I only have one lens that has oil on the blades, and that is an M39 mount um, uh, camera, or uh, excuse me, lens. It's the KMZ Jupiter 3 that I love so very much. It's probably like pretty ancient, too. Yeah, right. It, yeah, it's 50. Um, uh, it's from 1953. 52. It's from 1952 mm-hmm. because my uh, Leica M2 is from 1953, so it's a year older. Um, and that is, um, you know, yeah, that's a a decent time ago. Yeah, it is. Um, and it, and the whole thing is uh, oil on the blades of a, um, you know, on the aperture blades of 
a rangefinder, a manual rangefinder lens is no deal, no, no big deal at all, as long as they'll open right, and close. Does, uh, it doesn't have auto stop down. Right. So it's, it's not like, it doesn't have to do it in a split second or anything. Right. right? So, no, yeah, it'd be more like, and it might maybe muck the shutter up a little, but even there, yeah. you know, a little bit of, a little, your shutter's probably off a little anyway on I, the camera. So I actually know. believe that the, um, the shutter blades are between the elements, so that wouldn't even be an issue. Um, yeah, that sounds that. sounds like it so, might. Yeah, well, maybe you did oil on the elements yeah. might not be ideal, but yeah. <laughs> right. So, all right, um, you know, and one of the uh, you know there are a couple of reasons why I change or what you know why I only have a, a camera in the car for a certain period of time is that you know I like cameras for a certain period of time. You know, I want to use them for a certain period of time. One of the one of my favorite cameras of all time is uh, it comes in three different flavors. And in fact, I was just looking at my Vivitar version, but it's the Minolta Hymatic 7S2. Uh, it comes as the uh, Vivitar 35ES, and then it is the Konica. And it has a slightly different lens for the Konica. Uh, Konica Auto S3? Does that sound right? I don't know. Um, so these are like all out of the same factory and got different brands. All, and maybe a, all out of the same Cosina yeah. factory. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, I I would love... I You know, actually, I, I shouldn't say this. I would love if. But uh, I would not have a problem at all if the only things that I ever used were cameras made by Cosina because mm-hmm. there are enough of them and uh, and they seem to be really well built and yeah. you know it's not like you know even though you know there are other you know they've got other people's brands on them um, it, you know it, it's not like it was a second rate factory in, by any stretch um, no. so, uh, so yeah, I, I, um, and you know, who, I think they, yeah, they've even worked with Fujifilm, I believe they've done some really nice right, stuff. Right. Right. Well, I mean the Fuji, uh, SW667 is, um, the same thing as the Bessa three or Bessa two or whatever Bessa, uh, th- that they came out with, um, after Cosina bought the, the Voigtlander, uh, uh, name. So, uh, so yeah, I, I'd be happy with that. Now, you know, there was, there was something that I have been really thinking a lot on that goes down the same path. So I think it's still under the same, same, uh, we're going in the same direction, but it is certainly, yeah, let's just say it's the business loop of this conversation. It's going off to the side. So it, it's, <laughs> It's the concept of, um, you know, cameras that we love to hold uh, are the cameras that we love to use, but they're not necessarily the cameras that get the best images. Um, I just did uh, one of the reviews, uh, you know, uh, the add-on reviews that uh, Mike Gutterman's... um, adding on to a negative positive show. And I did a Bronica, uh, ET, uh, sorry, uh, ECTL, uh, six by six camera. Um, and it is by far the camera that has consistently given me the best images 
of all the cameras I've ever owned. Okay, so absolutely. And it's not that I don't like the camera, but I don't really love the camera. You know, it's big and it's heavy. And, you know, I was just shooting um, in North Carolina. I was on a little vacation in North Carolina. I was just shooting uh, with it with a 50 millimeter F3.8 or 3.5. I forget which one it was, but it's a big, heavy lens. And, you know, you're you're stooped over and you're looking and, you know, I don't love it. But you know what? I'm going to love those pictures. So Mm -hmm. the other end of that is, you know, you may not love every picture out of a camera, but if you love to use the camera, you're going to get good pictures because it's going to make you take a picture. Right. Yeah. You know, um, I had, uh, I had a discussion with, um, uh, with a graphic design department chair and, um, department, uh, a a private company. I'm not going to name the company, but she, she runs the, the department and she was just talking about how they had gone out and bought a Sony A7R2 Mark Seven, blah, you know. Anyway, it's. I know that's the, the late, that's the, late, the latest high tech digital right. Mo- that's machine. that's yeah. the camera to lust after. I just don't know what the numbers are, right? Um, and uh, or no, she she had said that there was, uh, they had gotten one, and then month later the second one came out, or the Mark Two came out. I think that that was what it was, and um, and I said, are you going to get the Mark Two? And she said. No, because it is not about the tools you use. It is about the person who uses the tools. A comment that I fully agree with. But if that tool makes you excited to use it, you do better work. Yeah. You know, uh, that's number one. Number two is um, she's in the business of making attractive things she's in the business of making things that get people to do things so she you know graphic design right that's what graphic design is it we as graphic designers that our business is entirely coercing somebody into doing well coercing might be a strong word but uh, getting people to do something that they may not otherwise do but that we want them to do um and that's that's what my industry is so, sure. um, it's, it's essentially, um, targeted plumage, right? Yeah, absolutely. Social plumage, absolutely. Or, or, uh, you know, electronic plumage or whatever. Uh, but yes, absolutely. Um, so that is one of the things that, you know, you can say you can do just as good a work with it, but if it doesn't excite you, no, you're not going to. You know, um, so, uh, so that, that all comes around to that same thing. The camera that sits in my car is usually my latest camera, my, um, you know, my toy camera right now. Uh, it's the Konica, um, auto reflex TC with the 40 millimeter, um, uh, 1.8. And I got my first, I, I processed my first rolls from that. Oh, that is a beautiful lens. I know. I get, and, and I'm I'm carrying around the uh, FS1 Konica FS1 with right. the same lens on it, and it's just I just keep leaving my fancy Nikon behind because it's so much fun to use that camera. Right. And it's just, it's everything about that 
the lens handling it, what you see when you look through the viewfinder, it's all just perfect. Yeah, and and to tell you the truth, I think that the the Auto Reflex TC is a decently dis- designed um, uh, camera body, but it's I'm looking, I love what I see through that forty millimeter one point eight. So, yeah. so anyway, that's. Um, uh, and while we're on this topic, I'm just, I, that's exactly the reason that I, with digital, modern digital equipment, I always stick with Fuji. The Fujifilm X series cameras are 100% designed to make you really happy handling them and right. shooting with them. And they are perfectly happy to sacrifice, you know, the highest resolution, the biggest sensor and all of that in order to make sure that everything else about using the camera is perfect. And it, it really makes a huge difference it's 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 exactly what you're describing now as far as this that goes i've been thinking a lot about this for, with our diy cameras so i'm using uh, a kind of you know various different cobbled together contraptions to shoot medium format with lightweight cameras and i'll tell you what right now i think the biggest problem with them is that they are boxy and they have hooks and and washers and bolts and you know, funny corners on them. And so when you, when you want to pull them out of a bag and use them, they tend to get caught. They're awkward. They, you know, this is the next thing. I want to make a camera that's like a bar of soap with a good handle on it so, sure. so that I can just like get it quickly and use yeah. it without any struggle or tangle or, you know, any of that. And that, rounded corners, thing. right? Rounded corners. Yeah, really. Yeah. Total seventies bullnose camera. Yeah. 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 And, and, and we can get to that and we can get to that. And I'll talk a little bit later on about, um, some, uh, my continued development of the Flexopan and, uh, my uh, experience with the 24 squared, which is my little uh, 35 millimeter square uh, camera. So uh, instead of uh, instead of launching into that right now, what do you say we start the homemade camera podcast? Yeah, so I feel like I didn't get to the point of the of the discussion about travel and hiking cameras last time. And either that, or I completely forgot everything I said. Uh, one way or the other, I feel like I wanted to to sort of sum up where that discussion left me in terms of what I want to build and how to design cameras for travel and hiking. And I just mentioned the the business of making them easy to get in and out of a bag or a pocket or whatever. And I think that's a, a big challenge that I want to overcome with some of my homemade stuff. Um, but I kind of made a list of, of the things that, that I most want to work on next. And one of them is something you've already started, which is the idea of you carry a roll film back and you have different specialized fronts for it. So maybe one or two or three, whatever you may need as a way to have less stuff to carry. So you base everything on a format, pick a format, have some roll film in a, in a holder, and then, you know, maybe a long lens and a wide lens, just put them on a very simple, uh, either fixed focus or helical focus nose cone that you can snap right on there. Um, you know, this, this is just so simple and streamlined, um, and way to save weight and, and clutter. So that's one thing I'd like to pursue. And then I had this other idea, like, I really want something that, that works like a medium format rangefinder that's as cool to use as, 
one of the expensive ones, you know, like Mamiya 7 or something. But I'm not going to be spending that kind of money. So uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm working with a Mamiya press, which is exactly the opposite. It's like a skyscraper, you know, around your neck with, um, with wonderful lenses and it can do all kinds of stuff. It has ground glass. It has rangefinder that really works. It's got all this, you know, interchangeable lenses, but it, it weighs, I don't know, 7,000 pounds and it's a, exactly shaped like a cinder block, you know? So, but then it occurred to me, well, what if I took one of those? Cause they're inexpensive. And if I just cut away everything except the parts I need, you know, the lens mount and the rangefinder uh, linkage and just cut everything else off and then replace that with a really sturdy, lightweight, homemade chassis. Um, that is a really interesting idea. It might be possible to, to bring it down, make it much easier to handle and bring the weight down to a manageable size without me having to build a high precision, uh, uh, you know, direct linkage rangefinder. So that's one idea I'm going to look at. Um, and then I started thinking, well, you know, I've already started doing that where, when I converted a, an old crown graphic into a field camera and that's another, it's actually much lighter than any field camera, except maybe some of the, maybe the Intrepid is in the same ballpark, you know, but, but, uh, that's another kind of starting point for that. Um, and then maybe we'll look around and see some other kind of heavy old cameras that could be re thought with modern materials to make them light and streamlined and, and just keeping the important guts. So that's, so, that's a direction I'd like. To so go. yeah, uh, I'm, I'm with you in that direction. Uh, the, the one thing that I keep thinking about for functionality in that size range, in the medium format rangefinder is that that rangefinder needs to be coupled. Yeah. And I mean, I, I have an uncoupled rangefinder and it's great, except when you need it to be fast and then it isn't, you know? <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Um, so, uh, you know, um, that, yeah, that just, that just pulls me, you know, because, okay, if it's an uncoupled range finder, what you have to do is then, um, transfer what you get out of your, your uncoupled range finder to the lens. And it's just, sure. it, it's just a slow process. So, and, and I end up just, I end up just zone focusing instead. Um, it, and, and, and then if you want precision for like a very, uh, fast lens or something, well, you need, you know, you're going to need a measuring tape. Like it, it's got to be right on. So I agree. I think that, so I'm looking for a way to build a coupled rangefinder. Now you can start with a crown graphic. They have coupled rangefinders, but they're awkward. And, but the nice thing about the Mamiya press is that that's a really, a true coupled rangefinder with interchangeable lenses. So you don't have to adjust anything. You just snap a different lens on there and go. So making, that's probably my best bet for, what, for that. Can you, can you look at that? Goal. You know, is there anything on that body that you could lop off? Um, oh yeah. I mean, most of it really. <laughs> okay. So, um, I mean, so maybe this is a metalworking modification project as opposed to a well, just, build. Exactly. Exactly. Except that I'm going to cut so much off that I'm going to be building, you know, two thirds of the camera from scratch at least, but just not rebuilding the, the mechanically difficult, you know, precision part, which is mostly on the top. So other people have modified this camera by removing the rangefinder, which makes it compact and lighter, but it takes away the one reason that I like the camera. Um, so I want to do the opposite, do the opposite thing and think about my, you know, we could build out of stuff like you know, fiberglass or epoxy and, and, 
and fabric, we can make something really light, any shape we want. We don't have to use a big metal box like they did. Yeah, so that's that's a project that I'd like to try. Um, and I have a, a good one to, as a basis. Like, I don't want to destroy the one I have, but it, it gives me something to look at to figure out how to go about it. Right. So, I mean, there it, it, part of the problem is that that range finder and that viewfinder are super huge, which is great, right? That's the type of thing that we want. But they're so huge, they become in the way, right? Right. But I don't know how much of what's inside that big rectangle is actually needed. Like, there might be a lot of air in there. You know, we, once I look in there, so maybe it can have like a, a you know, a really cut down compartment with the same mechanics in it. And what I, what you need to do is you need to keep the, the linkage, which is on the top of the lens mount, right underneath the actual range finder housing. So in theory, we, I could cut away a great deal of the camera and just maintain that little connection. And of course you have to maintain the parallel planes front and back, but I don't know, that shouldn't be too hard. And then, uh, anyway, let's, jump past that because I haven't okay. solved those okay. problems yeah, yet. Yeah, yeah. It's just an idea that I wanted to try. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to mention is it, it all this talk brought me to think about what are the actual design priorities for almost any camera? Like, where do you start? And we talked about this before in terms of starting with a lens and so forth and so on. But what really matters to me when I like decide what camera to use is first format. That's the first thing. How big is the piece of film and what shape is it? And then the next thing is field of view, which, you know, is tied into that. How much of the world do I want on that format? And then from there, you know, do you need a flexible or a specialized camera? We talked about that with the idea of universal cameras. You know, what kind of options do I want? Does it just have to take this picture or maybe do I want to be able to change a lens or whatever, you know? And then the, the other equally important thing that we just discussed is handling. What, what is it like to use? You know, how, how comfortable and fast is it to handle? And, uh, and what kind of features, you know, do you add? So I think that's this, for me, that's the order of, of, of what the decision-making, but in a funny way, the last thing on the list turns out to be the most important. Right, right. Exactly. I, uh, I was just, I'm sorry. I was, uh, just paging through Google images of the Mamaya press, trying to figure out what I could do with that. And what do I come across a picture of Dora Goodman's uh, uh, adjustment of that with with wood. Um, she's doing she's doing great stuff, but hers are not uh, coupled rangefinder designs. She's using that fantastic lens as as a viewfinder camera, and I'm doing the same thing with my Mercury, and it it's fine. I like it a lot, but I'm really what I'm just talking about is when you want a coupled rangefinder medium format camera. They're all either really expensive or old, ancient. You know, you can get one of those old Zeiss cameras with a insanely tiny viewfinder and all that. And they're, you know, they're not as convenient. I mean, there are good folding cameras with coupled rangefinders from way back in the day, but they're not a big, bright, easy to use viewfinder usually. And, you know, so, so this is, this is one do it yourself challenge that I'd like to take on. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, what else, uh, could we do, uh, that would be travel friendly, but is, is a type of camera that we haven't talked about, um, 
already. What are what are some of the other um, concepts uh, of travel photography? You know, one of them is is quite simply, you know, the snapshot camera, right? Um, the the uh, I, you know, I I can you know go back to those Olympus cameras um, from the '60s. You know, everything from the pen half frame cameras up through the, um, uh, what am I trying to say through the, uh, uh, what's their big travel camera? Why can't I think of the big? Well, 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 I'm not sure what you're thinking of, but I know, I mean, a lot of the best examples of what we're talking about are Fujifilm. So like they made a huge six by nine rangefinder That's just great. And actually those aren't that expensive. They, they're probably the smart choice if you don't want to build your own, they made a whole range from six four five up to six by nine of excellent rangefinder cameras. So those are, and they're not heavy. They're they're that you know they're not super convenient either. They're they get pretty big. Right. Uh, the sm- the small ones are pretty nice, and the really good ones, of course, are really expensive. You know the the fo- the folding ones and you know those and that so that what you just asked the question you asked, um, what are we not discussing? Well, I use and love. The old, old folding cameras, I think they're really great. And I tend to use the uncoupled simple ones because I can afford them and they're they're more compact. They're more foolproof that they tend to be still working, you know, after many years. Um, that's something that just occurred to me that, well, we could, you know, that's something to look at building one of those folding cameras because I love the pocket size thing and... I can't afford the fantastic, you know, Fuji version that's, you know, whatever, $2,600 or something. But why not find a decent lens and set it up as a folding camera? It wouldn't necessarily be a coupled rangefinder, but if you can get it in your pocket, I love it. Right. right? Well, okay. So the camera that I was uh, thinking of, of course, for a travel camera is the Trip 35. Okay. That, and that was a zone focusing camera. It wasn't even... So forget, we don't need a couple range finder for that. Um, we can do a, um, you know, uh, uh, zone focusing. And uh, part of the deal was I was trying to bring it back to 35 millimeter because 35 millimeter is much more of a uh, travel friendly, walk around friendly format. And, uh, you know, so the big thing that we have to do with, with that kind of format is we have to figure out um, the lens because there are many fewer um, lens in shutter combinations or shutter in lens combinations for 35 that are available today that are decent because while that was popular, you know, the leaf shutter um, uh, cameras were popular in the 40s through the 60s, um, they are, they're dwindling today and the lenses just aren't ones that you want to scream, you know, hey, I've got the best lens in the world uh, for. But 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 let's actually, you know, I'm just I'm going to wipe out what that last bit that I said, because we're talking about a travel picture camera and we don't necessarily need the best, sharpest, brightest, um, uh, you know, fastest lens. Right. Um, so, so, what we so need for is, me, the, it, the issue is not quality. You're saying right now, and I agree. And I also think that 
the the folding camera lenses that I'm talking about from the 50s, right. actually their quality is great. There's nothing wrong with the quality, and quite often the shutters still work pretty well. But here's the issue for me: they're all normal lenses or slightly wider. Right. They, they, there aren't any real wide choices. There certainly aren't any telephoto choices. Like that's the limitation. It's it's not so much quality is that they all are one of my favorite. You know, wide normal is one of my favorite things. But what if you want something wider? And pretty much all I can think of, uh, other than large format lenses, are the uh, the Mamiya twin lens reflex. Um, they come in pairs, um, and some of those have shutters. But the problem is that it has a flange focal distance of 80 millimeters. So you are talking about, you know, yeah, you can it's make a, a nice... Snout. Right. Right, exactly. It's got to be a fold, a folding camera, or it's awkward. One or the other. Yeah, because it's not going to fit in your pocket. Awkward. Right. Yeah. Right. So, right. so unless you thought about, well, okay. So let's let's say you want to go with one of those, and you have that long snout. You know, uh, the the big problem is the T shape of the body at the end of the uh, of the lens, right? So maybe you do something along the lines of the Mamiya 645, um, mm-hmm. where you have, uh, and the way that works is essentially the film roll sits behind the film gate, sits on the, uh, on the, in back of the film gate. So you mm-hmm. could do something along those lines with 35 millimeter, even though I can't, can you think of a camera that does that? Uh, 35 millimeter. Yeah, um, yeah, it, not really. I mean, it just occurs to me though that that Roly did make a thirty-five millimeter conversion setup for their twin lens reflexes. Okay, and there may, there might be a way that you could work with that piece of equipment. You can buy it separate. I think that this is I something that that you could. Uh, it's you called could a Roly kin. Yeah. Oh, sure. Well, we can make something, and yeah. and and with that in mind, one thing that bothers me about all the roll film holders is that they take up all this unnecessary space because they put the film in front of the rollers. And so they have this big bulgy back. Right. And that's just backwards. Like any any 35 millimeter camera puts the film at the very back of the camera, making the camera as shallow as it can be and puts right. the rolls in front. And that's what you need to do. Like that's already always going to save you, you know, a couple centimeters at least, right. if not more. So that's that's one thing that's kind of backwards. So... Right off the bat, make a roll film holder, which puts the film at the back instead of at the front. Right, right. Um, so that's or, that's one thing. Or, well, here's here's part of the deal is that 35 millimeter cameras generally have a straight across film path. And you could put it in front or you could put it behind that film plane. So you could actually put it in the front out a little bit to the side, but still in front um, and get and maybe work it into a grip like shape. Um, mm-hmm. And that would reduce the overall length of something yes. like that. So, man, now I want to start designing that. And I've got too many. I've got too many projects on my plate right now. So, so just you just have to do the sketches and stick them in the notebook for someday. Yeah, I mean, and for now, what you and I both do is we use affordable rangefinder cameras because the shutter's in the camera and there's a fair range of lenses. And once I found that Minolta adapter for my 
uh, Cosina Bessa rangefinder and realize that I don't actually need a coupled rangefinder with a really wide angle lens because everything's in focus anyway, so who cares? Um, so that solves the problem for, you know, my portable uh, alternative. Um, and the Minolta lenses are a little big. Like I'd like to find an adapter for something more like an Olympus or, you know, some of the smaller lenses would be nice. Um, but, and then, and also remember with wide angle lenses, you have a shorter focal distance. So you could start to look at uh, some of those alternatives. You don't, it's not going to stick out 90 millimeters. It's only going to be, you know, 50 or something. So it's not as bad. And, and, you know, there are a couple of, uh, of lenses, um, now they don't have shutters in them, but I'm thinking about those Roly uh, 35s, um, you know, the, the super yeah, miniature. I love that camera. Now, I love that camera. I have I'm, one of those. I'm going to back you up to the camera that is, was made at the same time to the same specifications, but used 126 film. That's the Roly A26. So I don't know that. It, it's, but it's this, I mean, I have a, um, a Roly 35 LED and a Roly A26. It's the same lens. Um, now, if we can work a shutter, then we can, we can do whatever lens we want. And that, you know, you, you made the joke. We're, uh, we're, we're talking back and forth about, um, uh, the, the, flexo pan that i'm working on and uh at one point nick said oh well all you need is a, a focal plane shutter and i'm thinking oh yeah okay so maybe i'll just run out to ace hardware and get some titanium for the blades you know because it's got to be vertical travel if i'm not going to do a vertical travel one you know i might as well you know uh yeah but here's the deal is that we need to get that we need to get there um, and, um, you know, and there are people who are working on it as well. Um, uh, camera dactyl Ethan has shown some examples, um, of, uh, of a semi working focal plane shutter, uh, or at least a concept, you know, a concept proof of concept design. Okay. So I have, a I have a much less ambitious idea, which is. A, a, a some sort of homemade shutter that doesn't go super fast, just fast enough. Okay, fast enough to handhold and some slow speeds and bulb. But my idea is something that you just screw onto the filter threads on the front of a lens. So if you want to use a single lens reflex lens and you need to control the light coming into it to some extent, well, what about that? What about just making something that you can just screw on the front and, you know, with a toggle that you push and, and you get yourself some kind of a shutter. I mean, that might be a starting point. Do you think a couple um, double zero would be the right size or do we need something? Well, no, I mean, I'm talking, I'm talking about a big giant thing because we're talking about like a an SLR lens with a 49 millimeter, you know, filter thread. Yeah. Right. So we're what is I'm that talking about, about screwing three? it on the front. Yeah. Well, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm talking about a homemade shutter, not, not, oh, okay. not a real, okay. not a real one. Just, just something as a starting place for starting to just use some of these. But here's another thing. Mamiya 645 lenses, there are at least two with built-in shutters. Even though that camera had a focal plane shutter, they made a couple with leaf shutters for, for high-speed flash sync. And, and they are a little bit longer. I think one's a 70 millimeter. There might be a 50. I'm not sure. There were a couple somewhat unusual ones that you could fire, you know, with its own shutter in it. And 
those would be an option. I mean, a 70 millimeter would be a good portrait lens, and they're not that big. The 645 lenses are pretty small. I'm using them on SLRs now. And so that's another place to look. So there are, and I think Bronica made some of those too. I think they made a few leaf shutter lenses to sell to people who did flash portrait work. Uh, so that's an, another place to start. I'm looking at a Mamaya um, or a Mamiya um, brochure right now that has a 55 f 2.8 leaf shutter. Yeah, that's a great lens. That is a wonderful lens because okay. I have the one without the leaf shutter, and it's absolutely one of my top favorite all-time okay, lenses. Okay, so... And they also did a 70 with a leaf shutter that's more common. Uh, but, you know, their Mimia 645 stuff isn't very expensive, so it's a good place to start. And I'm quite sure you can just fire those with a you know independent cable that runs to that shutter. Okay. So and you know fifty five that's that's a nice that's a little bit of a long normal but that's a very useful lens and and seventy is a nice generous portrait uh, length so yeah it's a good place to start. Yeah. Uh one hundred fifty bucks two sixty nine. Yeah, and you get a shutter. Right. Uh one forty nine. There we go. So I mean, you got almost the whole camera there. All you need is a film, and it's a film fifty-five millimeter lens. Yeah, yeah. That it's which is and and it's know. pretty compact. I don't know how much bigger the shutter makes it, but the one I have is quite comfortable to use on you know a Pentax or a Nikon or something like that. It's not a right. big lens. So here's the question: um, What is the actuation of the leaf shutter? Uh, yeah, we we need to go deeper into that. Whether we can. Run it's, that it's independently shutter. powered. You, you know, it's cock and fire. It's not electronic. Oh, I'm, okay. I'm pretty. I'm. I'm sure. Then what I'm looking yeah. at is not the right one here. Let's see. Well, maybe I'm wrong. I could. Be no, wrong, no. But... I, I, I'm. I'm just saying that the one that I'm looking at is not the right one. Um, but we can. Uh, I'll look a little bit deeper into that because I'm looking for a lens for the um, for the uh, Flexopan. And this would work if it would work, right? Right, right. And of course, of course, there's a bunch of Hasselblad lenses with leaf shutters in them, but they tend to be pricey. And if, the, but you know what? If there's a Hasselblad lens, then there's a former Soviet Union knockoff version of it. So that might be really where you want to. Start. Oh, well, that's interesting. Um, yeah. Lens for Kiev eighty-eight. Or 60, but... Oh, I think the 60 had a focal plane, didn't it? Yeah, but they I bet they still made a few leaf shutter lenses. Well, let's see. Fisheye. Let's see what the fisheyes are. Um, <laughs> Sounds fun. <laughs> the Zodiac 8, which was a 30 millimeter F3.5 Kiev um, 88 bayonet, which, as I heard, you can jam them on a... Um, uh, you you can jam them onto a Hasselblad. The problem is getting them back off. Um, Actually, there are adapters for Kiev lenses. They, okay. they exist. They're out there. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So uh, this doesn't look like it has a shutter in it. Yeah. But, um, but you know, there's, there's a handful of these for some cameras. I think Bronica probably did some. Yeah. And, you know, Mamiya did some. I mean, they're out there. They exist. And when it comes to normal lenses, there were ones made for the the early, kind of the 1950s kind of viewfinder era. They had some pretty nice lenses from that era that had shutters built into them for 35 millimeter cameras. I mean, 
They're out there too, Kodak. And quite a few of those cameras are really a problem to use, but doesn't mean that the, the shutter and lens aren't fine. Right. And that, here's a 45 millimeter, but again, I don't see the shutter. I don't think these things, they have a, um, an aperture ring, but I don't see the shutter in, in there. Um, so sure. we'll, well, we'll have to, we'll have to do a little bit more research on that, but that's, uh, that's some good thinking. Yeah. There's some stuff to start with. And then, so here's, so here, this is a good segue into to the next thing we had talked about talking about, which is we wanted to talk about framing and like how you frame your images, how you pick a format, how you, you know, how that part of this fits in. And what we're describing here is the problem of finding the right lens. And if you can only find a few lenses that solve all your problems, then how do you get different fields of view? Well, the simplest way is to change the size of the film. So if you're, if you're stuck with a certain lens and you want it to be wider, well, you can shine it on a bigger piece of film, assuming it, you know, it's, it's capable. It has a big enough image circle. Um, so that's the next place to go. Um, and I play that game quite a bit. You know, I only have a few lenses that I really like using. And now I'm just trying to figure out ways to get all different sizes of film behind them so that I have more choice. So, yeah, so you have to think of uh, of image circle, but as long as you have the image circle, then you can start uh, start working down those paths. Um, I'm thinking about how, um, you know, when you get to medium format and you put it on a uh, 35 millimeter frame, say, um, you're, you're always, you're going telephoto generally, right? Um, and although, you know, I mean, you don't, it doesn't have to be, you know, there are some wider lenses for, uh, the, that are medium format, wider than sure, they're, 50 or They're just 45. harder to, it's harder to find one in good shape for an affordable price. That's all. Right. Yeah. And yeah. the affordable price is really the, uh, the big one. Um, right. so, um, you know, you can certainly, you can certainly do that, but it's also, you know, uh, this is something that, that I've been thinking about a little bit, uh, lately because I was just listening to, um, the latest lensless podcast and I'm not going to get his full name, but it's another guy named Graham. Oh, I don't know what the deal is. We were everywhere. You know, I've, I've gone my entire life without actually meeting another person named Graham. Um, but then the lensless podcast has a, has a guy on and what, he's chicken thumbs on, uh, Flickr on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And what, if you go to chicken thumbs on Instagram, you'll see that he does a lot of work with, um, uh, a lot of work with a camera that is, um, essentially it has five panels and he refers to it as the five panel camera. It has, uh, it's essentially a square box and he cuts out, he cuts out paper and, um, and these are pinholes. So, uh, so he has the back of the box that gets the square image. Then he has the sides of the box that get a diagonal image coming in there. And I keep wanting to work more and more with a lens to camera in that same type of vein. Um, so, you know, I mean, we're, we were just talking about the idea of a, of a 35 millimeter 
uh, or a small um, image circle that works on a large format, well, who's to say it has to be straight on? Now, if you want it to be in focus, it needs to be straight on, but that doesn't mean that it can't be effective coming in at an angle, um, you know, essentially, you know, a tilt back, that type of thing. You stop that puppy down and you're going to get uh, some some interesting effects. Now, this is obviously not your travel camera. This is not your standard use well, every every day you know, camera. We're, we're done talking about travel. Now we're talking about really implausible things to get right. more options of framing and right. formats. And what, I just want to throw in that when you said that, I suddenly had an image pop into my head of imagine a camera that had something square, triangle, pen, pentagon, whatever, with lenses pointing in all directions, and you wrap the film or paper emulsion-covered substance around a cylinder in the middle. So you've created a 360-degree camera that's also an anamorphic camera. (laughs) But it's an external anamorphic as opposed to an internal anamorphic. Well, when I'm picturing, the lenses are in a circle around a cylinder of the recording medium. And so each, each of those image circles would be like put onto a bent surface, but it need not be very bent. Um, and then it would just sort of blend into the next image, you know, as, as it went around. I mean, it could be a really, it could be a, something to play with. And of course you could wrap the, the film around a, a pentagon with crisper corners if you wanted it to be, you know, a, a little more um, normal looking, but that's an, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. So, I so, I mean, that's, and that's one of those things that I kind of want to do with some some more experimental um, uh, ends of things. But, you know, once again, as I said, my plate is full. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, okay. So let's talk about some of the other uh, framing aspects that, um, uh, that, that come up. One of the, one of the things that um, I am very interested in is non-standard formats. So, um, panoramic, um, you know, uh, square formats for 35 millimeter. Yeah, that's a non-standard format, but the square format's out there and it's been out there forever. Um, but, you know, really wide panoramics, um, you know, uh, uh, two to, you know, two to one, three to one. Um, I think the, I think the um, the X-Pan is 2.65 to 1 or something like that. I don't remember. Um, yeah, yeah. But um, the idea I, I, of, of working yeah, I've in just those, been playing. I've just been yeah. playing with that format, with that uh, conversion, that, that RB67 roll film back that I converted to, this, to basically 64 by 24 millimeter mm-hmm. uh, frame. And I really like it. It is a yeah. very, very nice format yeah. to work with. It's, it's not too skinny and wide. Like, it's still got some headroom. But it's definitely panoramic. It's a nice one. So and it's thirty-five millimeters, so you get fifteen shots. And even with a real sloppy, you know, crude version that that I'm working with, you could probably get another shot or two out with a more precise design. Okay, so it 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 has a thirty-five. It, it advances thirty-five millimeter film. Yeah, and you, all it is is it's an RB sixty-seven back with that's been modified to take thirty-five millimeter cassette and. And you just advance as normal, so it's advancing seven, a little more than seven centimeters each time you crank the the lever, 
and um, and then it has a mask that's that holds the film really flat and masks off 60 well, I think it's 65 millimeter by 24 millimeter so it's it's very similar and what happens is the spacing's a little off and the spacing's a little exaggerated at one end of the roll but it turns out that when you cut it when you're all done you get two frames on each strip of film all the way through the roll and they fit perfectly in my uh, 35 millimeter film holder and those little bars interrupt, but it doesn't matter because my my scanner can only do the, the normal size at one shot. And so I just keep moving the film. I basically do three scans of each frame and then stitch them in Photoshop. And it works perfectly. It's very easy and fast because you can see what you're doing with those little bars that separate it out Yeah, um... on, on the film holder. And it's just super easy to do every single time it comes out. Uh, first shot, you know, the, the stitching and I don't know, I, I think it's a, a very good solution. I think it would be fun to put that on, um, the 67, um, pinhole body. Yeah. Um, right. It's, uh, it's a Graflock that. standard film holder. Yeah. You can use it on all these cameras. I, I just threw it on the, uh, on the Mamiya press because that has the really good, um, a couple of range finders, so it's just very easy to use. I have two different lenses that fit on it, and I also stuck it on the Mercury with a 90 millimeter lens, and, and that worked really fine too. So it's a great place to start because you've got that format, and you can use it on a bunch of different uh, cameras if you've got any any two by three graph lock. Cameras. So, so if you're putting that on the um, on the Mamiya Press, so how do you frame it in the viewfinder? Okay, with with what I did is I have diff, I have a couple different optical viewfinders that I use. So I, I focus with the built-in viewfinder, and then the way Mamiya Press is designed to be used, you the the, the optical viewfinder is at just a normal framed viewfinder with a really easy to use uh, rangefinder patch in it. And then you're, you're with a Mamiya Press, you're supposed to put a different optical viewfinder for framing up on top. So you focus looking through one and you move your eye, you know, a centimeter and you're looking through the framing one. So yeah, it takes a little extra second compared to a regular rangefinder camera, but you know, you've got a perfect viewfinder for each. The only thing is I haven't bothered to make a mask. So I'll put on a viewfinder that gives me the right field of view and the right magnification. And then I just have to remember I'm only going to get the center strip. And, you know, uh, I, I've been thinking about that a lot, especially with the, with the flexo pan. And while it is really nice to see exactly what it is that you're, you're looking for, it's not really necessary if you have a brain that, yeah, it, right. that is good at pre-visualization. And not and everybody's also, brain is, you know. And I also like being able to see more than the image for, for composition purposes. And, and actually my solution won't be to make a black mask. My solution will be to make a mask that just creates two lines across the viewfinder. You know, just so that you still have the big view, you just see where it's going to get cut off. That's all. I mean, is the plan to do that with like a sharpie or something, or or what? No, no, what's no, the no. Real plan? <laughs> no, I'll, I'll I'll make a little cap that sticks on the front of the viewfinder that has I don't know. It could the, a lot of them were made in the old days with just a piece of clear acetate. acetate oh, okay, okay, a very okay, fine yeah. line drawn on it. You know, you just you get your skinniest pen and you draw a little line on on the acetate. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, Sna yeah snap that, it on there. Well, I mean, you, you know, I had to ask, and I'm glad that I did there. Um, so, yeah, I think that that'll 
that'll help me as I come along and start confronting that um, in, uh, you know, with that build. So, and so, so for the 90 millimeter lens with a six, a six by nine back, I'll use a 35 millimeter viewfinder and those are dirt cheap, easy to find. And you know, just, all you need to do is, is put a mask on it that shows that it's cut off top and bottom. Or what I did is I just, I just, just, you know, it's not that hard to figure out. It's, it's a little bit skinnier and you just use the very middle of the, of the frame and you get a, you get what you're expecting. It's not that hard to do. And then there, I have a wider angle one that I use with a 50 millimeter lens and it, it's, uh, it's all pretty straightforward. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, one of the, also the, the, the things that I'm, I really want to think through, um, with this, you know, with, with this concept is the idea of how you, how you go about framing any sort of, um, of frame shape. Okay. So, you know, how do you, how do you frame a panorama? How do you, how do you do a panorama portrait? You know, um, how do you, how do you frame, how do you do a portrait in a square as opposed to a 35, you know? Right. So Um, now you're talking about aesthetic considerations. Right, right. The aesthetic, the aesthetic end of that. And, uh, some of this came up with, um, I just assigned to my, um, digital photography class um, to work with models. Okay. And so what they do is they switch off. Um, you know, I, I, I assign groups and, um, everybody's going to be a model and everybody's going to be a photographer. So, uh, you know, the rule of, or the role of the photographer is to tell the model what to do. The role of the model is to say, Hey, I'm uncomfortable doing that or to do it. Right. Um, so, I mean, you know, that, that's part of, uh, part of the deal, but, um, seriously, I mean, I, we just went through the critique on, uh, the, this past Thursday. So, uh, and we're on Sunday, so you, you do the math four or five days ago. And, um, the, uh, and, and the, the, the thing was that of, um, uh, let's see, they each had to submit three and they're about, Right now we're down to, we're down to 10. So, so 30 photos, uh, 30 total photos. And, um, of those 30 total photos, uh, four of them came in where the photographer actually rotated the camera into portrait mode, which, uh, you know, um, I'm sorry, you know, it's portrait mode, (laughs) you know, you're doing portraits, you're doing model photography and uh and it and it kind of it kind of pushed me back you know that they that they hadn't really figured that through yeah i i i hesitate a little bit because i i have a hard time with portrait mode on it on a two the typical um you know 35 millimeter or 6 by 9 or you know any of the three i'm sorry any of those rectangles i i just don't like standing the camera on its side it it annoys me it's like i don't want to just frame around the subject i want more to be happening in the frame than that and that's just me that's my the way i like things to be one of the reasons i really like square is that there is no portrait mode you know you, yeah, you yeah, to, yeah yeah you have to think about what else is going on in the image so it, i'm i'm kind of with the people that want to hold the camera sideways but with that said 
that's why I don't prefer the standard rectangular format because right. there is always kind of this wasted area off to the sides that very often is a pain in the neck. Um, and I, I pref- that's why I prefer six by seven, even six, four, five, four by five square, all those ones that are just not quite so, so rectangular, unless you go right. all the way to panorama where you just have to really deal with it. Right. Um, and, and, you know, um, I, one of the one of the other things that that I'm working on, and in fact, actually, I'm succeeding on with those students, is the um, is the idea that they are now starting to see everything that's in the frame. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, so I, you know, uh, I'll I'll go back to uh, you know when I when I finish a photo, when I take it into Photoshop and and adjust the levels and all that type of stuff. I always go out to the edge of the uh, of the frame, the end of the film that is exposed by the camera. And there there are several reasons why. Um but one of the reasons is is so that I get in the habit of looking at everything that's in the frame and I get in the habit of getting to the point where everything that's in that frame is what I want to have in that frame. And if there is something that is in that frame that I don't like, or for instance, if, if I'm three degrees off of level, you know, where it's too much not to notice and it's not enough to look purposeful. Um, yeah. the, uh, you know, if I, if I'm in that range, you know, I throw the photo away. Um, because uh, that's part of my photo journey, right? Um, there are very few ex- exceptions where I'll crop inside um, that frame. But see, I'm know, exactly the opposite. I, in fact, I often, if I don't like something that's in the frame, I'll crop it when I'm scanning. <laughs> it's like it's a Scottish th- thing in me. You know, I don't want to waste the pixels on that crummy. Thing over there, <laughs> and and I would argue it's the Scottish in me that says that says I don't want to take the picture with it in there. Not that we're okay, stereotyping well, course, Scots as being thrifty. Yeah. No, but... no, that's the that's the proper that's the proper thing to do. Absolutely, yeah. um, of course. But nevertheless, um, yeah, I'm not yeah, going to throw yeah. away a great image just because I you know didn't quite frame it right. Well, that's because right. you're a lazy photographer and. Uh, and a good no, photo cause I, finisher. Because <laughs> I can't go back and do it over. Well, but I'll tell you, that's one reason I like shooting film. Because I am much more careful framing when I shoot with film. Even if I'm shooting fast, I find myself really feeling the edges of the frame. Because I just don't want to pay the money and throw it away. As, because you're right. If you frame it badly enough, it is gonna, it's going to wreck the shot. You're right. There, there, It does matter to me. And and. We'll get to the, at the very end of this, I want to talk a little bit about a show I just saw, um, of a a bunch of great photos of the American road by a lot of the best photographers that have, you know, ever taken photos in this country. And so it was a huge range of images and it was fun seeing that instead of seeing a whole bunch of similar things by the same person, this was a common theme, but a really wide range of photographers. And I tell you what, what really counted was the subject the framing, the feeling, it just didn't matter whether it was 35 millimeter or four by five or color, or it just didn't matter. What mattered was 
you know, exactly how strong the presence of what was happening in that frame was. And those little details are really what make the difference. So you're right about that. So this week I worked on the FlexoPan quite a bit. I was able to, uh, now I haven't printed anything yet, but uh, I was able to go in and do the engineering and I was just listening back. Um, in fact, today while I was in the shower, I have, I have my Bluetooth shower speaker and I was listening to our podcast from last week where I said that um, the if you're going to do a cylinder, with a circumference of 65 millimeters, it only has to have a diameter of 10. Well, I finally actually built the cylinder this week and it has a radius of 10. So, oh, uh, right. so, and you, you were insistent that it was 20. Um, you know, so, uh, so yeah, so I, I started doing that. I have what I think are sprockets that will grab on and, and hold. Well, actually, the sprockets are not to advance the film. The sprockets for this are to advance the uh, advancement ne- mechani- mechanism. And that is... Um, it's basically a measuring device right, that's telling you how much film you've run through. Right. And uh, there were a couple of things. Um, I had uh, I had mentioned before that I had built the body. And uh, yeah, I started with the, um, with the film gate because the film gate determines where everything else is, you know, so you do the film gate, then you do the land, you know, the focal length, uh, you know, flange focal distance, um, and all that type of stuff. Um, and then you do, um, then you start working on the other part. Well, I had built uh, a body and then, as I said, that, um, every time I was at, uh, at work, I didn't have that little sheet, of the, of the math that I had done. Um, and so I, I did a winding, you know, I did an advanced, um, mechanism and a rewind mechanism. This week I worked on that cartridge. Now I'm going to remind people what this is, is this is a camera that will do 65 millimeter, uh, or 24 millimeter high, the normal 35 millimeter frame. It's going to be 24 millimeters high. But it will do an image that is 64 millimeters wide, 48 millimeters wide, 36 millimeters wide, and then 24 millimeters wide. So the last one will be a, a square. So and you can control how far you advance the film. How far the film advances. Right. And then right. I'm going to have little drop-in masks. That's mm-hmm. It's just the simplest thing. You know, um, little masks that'll snap in. You know, uh, I, I've started building the advanced mechanism for the 65 millimeter because it was going to be the biggest one. So I needed, uh, the plan is to have a little cartridge that has the advanced mechanism and the dial, um, all in one. Okay. And so you just drop in this cartridge and then drop in the mask and you're shooting that format for the duration of that roll. And then you can pull out the mask and pull out the cartridge and swap in another one to shoot it at, at one of the other um, frame sizes. So um, the 
so I, I, you know, made the 65 millimeter frame cartridge or 65 millimeter sized frame advancement cartridge, brought it into the model and I didn't have enough horizontal space. So, um, I had to, um, uh, basically I had to cludge it. Um, there, there's no other way I filled in the space and then started cutting away the space again. And so, um, I, the, the body was not the, the right, the correct width for this, um, yeah, for so this you really cartridge. Kind so you need to start over with a bigger body. Yeah. But here's, here's what I've, I mean, here's what I found with all of this anyway, is that I always, um, build it multiple times, right? I build it, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, as, as Ethan said, it's six to one, right? You design it once and you redesign it six times. Um, and, or maybe he was thinking about the time, but that's, you know, the basic concept. So you're, you're basically, what you're saying is measure once, cut six times. No, what I'm, <laughs> yeah, you could say it that way. I'm saying the first time through is the discovery stage. Oh, I can't do this. Oh, I can do that. Okay. The second time through is when you're actually going to design a project, a product that will actually work, right? So, uh, so and I'm then not you really, refine, and then you refine it until you like it. Yeah. yeah and right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, right. So I'm not going to say, you know, this is never going to, in fact, actually, I don't even plan on putting the back on this model. Um, uh, although the back is going to be an important part because there will have to be a little pressure plate going across these. Well, so can I ask, so can I ask you a yeah. question? Are you, are you printing out some of these, um, not quite ready for use parts? You're actually I will. going to printing them. I will, but I have not yet. So you'll end up with kind of this boneyard of things that might turn into some other camera in the future. Yes, um, although the boneyard usually is um, uh, placed in the circular file and then removed to some other location uh, somewhere else in the world. Uh, maybe so, I should send you. Maybe I should send you a self-addressed package. <laughs> yeah, if you want, if you want me to hold hold all the stuff, I mean. I, I, I'll put it this way, just this week, you know, I, I was working on that original, when I first started working with the, um, and this is even before the show, um, yeah, this is last year, this is before the show, um, I made a 6x12 uh, lensed camera, and um, it, uh, uh, it was less than stellar in its performance, in fact, I've got it in my um uh in my cabinet over here but uh, it was it you know it light it had horrible light leaks it had film advance problems it had blah 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 you know it, it just was not a good design uh and plus i don't want to waste that much 120 film <laughs> yeah sure you know uh that's that's part of it so, so anyway, I just, uh, last week I had some parts, you know, that early versions that I just tossed out. So, um, I know, I know, um, when my, um, you know, when my fans find out that I've thrown out the Ur Flexopan, they'll, they're going to just, uh, yeah, they're. That's okay. That's the mining garbage is going to be, it's a, it's a going to be a big thing in the future oh that's we've right been thro- we've been throwing out so much valuable stuff for the last hundred and some years that that's it, 
Yeah. Garbage garbage prospecting will become a respectable... I, I have just uh, begun uh, reading a science fiction book called Sea of Rust. And mm-hmm. it is about a robot um, after the robots have waged a war against humans and killed all the humans. And uh, essentially what's going on is that the robots now have no parts, so they have to mine parts from other robots so it's a Mm -hmm. predatory old west kind of feel to it it's not Mm -hmm. like westworld or anything like that so so far you know i'm just a little bit into it so uh you know it may turn to be total crap but uh or it may be a really fantastic thing but i can just see that 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 bot digging through the landfill in ocala florida going i found it i have found it the Ur Flexopan. <laughs> yeah, right. I've always wanted this. So, so, so this, I just want to break in quick yeah, because sure. no I was problem. listening to the Film Photography Project earlier today and yeah. they had an episode recently where a guy came on and talked all about the microfilm. Oh, okay. Named, I think his name is Dan. And, and yeah. it was, it was really exciting because I don't know anything about it. And it turns out that microfilm is still in high demand and it's made right. in large quantities. It's really inexpensive. It has a few drawbacks, but they all sounded fine to me. And the the thing that got me really excited is two things. One is that they make a 35 millimeter. Quite a bit of it is made without sprocket holes. So right. that's interesting. But they also do... A, 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 you can buy microfilm in long rolls which are as wide enough to use in a 4x5 film holder. I don't remember the exact dimension, but you can get 4-inch tall roll film. It's readily available and it's affordable. It's slow film. It doesn't have much of an anti-halation layer, but it's roll film that's big. So think about the panorama camera you could make with that. That's really, really, that's really cool. So I think that stuff we've talked about in the past about figuring out a way to, to measure the advance of non-sprocketed film now I really want to work that out because that just could be amazing. Um, and it's affordable, like big format that's relatively cheap and it's on a roll. That's my kind of thing. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of the things, though, that I, I do remember him uh, talking about was if you want grays, this is not the right, for, <laughs> you know. But uh, they sort of, he sort of hedged and, and, you know, and I'm thinking, well, okay. Uh, if you if you use the right developer and you know the whole thing, and plus it it's four by five or bigger, and so as long as there's some tonal range, it could be really that could be really good for something anyway. It sounds appealing to me. No, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I I fully agree with you on that. Um, so okay, so let let me uh uh continue. Yeah, uh, okay. So one of the big things that the Flexopan is about is about film advancement measurement um using the sprockets. So uh so that's one of the things that I'm I'm I've really been concentrating on. But we do we have talked about you know, among ourselves we've we've talked about how do you do the same thing with 120. Um and uh you know without using that dang peep window in the back that that I first of all if I can see the numbers at all. I need my reading glasses to see them as opposed to, um, you know, uh, and, yeah. and half the time I can't see, 
I and have to turn it so that right. the light's directly hitting it anyway, which is right. kind of defeating and, the purpose. And your non-standard formats are really tricky because you need to use different windows and you got to have a formula. But here's, here's I think I've finally hit on the, the proper solution to this, which is a clamp and drag device. So instead of thinking about rollers and turning parts, just think of this. Imagine that you have a little clamp that grabs the edge of the film and you drag it sideways alongside a, basically a ruler on the top of the camera. What could be simpler than that, right? Clamp, drag. Release, slide it back to the left. Clamp, drag. Very simple. You, you just need a light, a light tight connection that allows you to make a, a, vert, a horizontal movement left to right. And some sort of, I mean, it could be almost as simple as, you know, one of those squeeze clamps that you hang things on the refrigerator with. I mean, maybe a little more sophisticated, but that's the basic mechanics that we're talking about. Um, it just grabs the edge of the film and pulls it sideways. And then you just read off, you know, I'm going four inches or I'm going two inches, whatever, right there. That seems like it, it could be a, a really practical, simple right. solution. And, and I, you know, one of the things that I was just talking about with framing is... Um, you know, one of, one of the things, one of the reasons why I show the full frame is I love the different frame inconsistencies and, and in, uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Irregularities. Um, you know, you get an old camera that has like schmutz in it and it's got a different, slightly different frame edge from uh another camera that has different schmutz in it right um mm -hmm. so it, it, that little clamp could be something that shows in the frame that identifies it as that camera which that that fires my bells you know uh and, I, and here, I, I like here, those here's a more complicated uh, version but imagine if the clamps are vertically oriented and they they define the front and be, the beginning and end of the frame they could also they could also drag the curtains that form the mask so in in the same device you could make any length uh frame and at the same exact time adjust the mask to fit it so so if you so i mean it would take some figuring out how to make that work and the camera might end up kind of wide but it's still for for an adjustable panorama camera. It's a really interesting uh, approach. Approach. Just forget about the turning part and and think about it more as a um, just simple horizontal movement. So uh, I'm uh, with the FlexoPen. I'm going to continue developing it, but I wanted to talk a little bit about another camera that I talked about last week, which I've named. Um, finally, I've named it. Um, it it's that little thirty five millimeter square 24 by 24 uh pinhole camera that i sent um i sent one to um andrew bartram and i sent one to Corey cannon both of the lensless podcast because i just wanted to uh i wanted to get them out there in somebody else's hands right and um and they're th they're pinhole pinhole folks though i i don't think that either of them particularly like 35 millimeter um, and right off the bat, Corey broke the advance knob off of his. Now, um, this leads back, um, it's not a, just so you guys know, this is not a design issue. It is a printing issue. Um, <laughs> no, and, no, I'm, and I'm going to tell you exactly why. And, um, 
the the deal is with say you build a one by one centimeter or one by one inch cube in mm-hmm. a 3D model and you print it. Well, it's not going to print all of that interior space. Oh, what it right. does is it prints a percentage of that interior shape, usually in a uh an X crosshatch um uh design. So mm-hmm. essentially what's in the interior is um v- vertical columns of air, you know, that are squares, you know, okay, so it so you can like do a, it in a different ways. A little patterns, bit of filler but, and yeah, right. Yeah, so so part of the deal was when I oh, does it trap these, the air? Is that like susceptible to altitude change issues? And yeah, stuff? I'm sure that they'll just yeah. explode at at altitude. <laughs> um, so so part of the deal was that the one that Corey got was one that I had printed, um, or that I had sent off to be printed. Now, when you send it off to be printed. You get the standard print. You don't, mm. or at least through the service that I've used, you get the standard print. You don't adjust it. Well, the mm-hmm. one that Andrew got was my last, you know, the, the last one that I printed, the, the pre-production proof model. And that has a 90% fill. Right. Whereas the one that Corey had probably had a 10% fill. So right. I'm in the process of printing Corey another knob. That, um, fixes, that, um, addresses that issue. The oh, reason yeah. why I bring that up is, first of all, is, uh, to all my Kickstarter backers, it's not my fault. Oh, never mind. Uh, this is the reason why I'm not going to do <laughs> Kickstarter. Um, by the way, anybody who wants to do Kickstarter, listen to the Kickstarter in the pants episode of the sunny 16 podcast, <laughs> because there's, there's one really important issue that completely said never do a Kickstarter. And I'll, and I'll get back with that. But the, um, uh, but, but, but the deal that, that I'm saying is I have to find a way to control that aspect of the production because some, some of the things it doesn't matter. For the body of a camera, general, t- generally 10 to 10%, 20% will create a very strong structure, but it's the, it's the, it's the parts that take a lot of torque, yep. like the film advance knob. So, or take a lot of stress through a small part, which is that shaft that goes from the top of the lid to the bottom of, you know, to inside the camera. Um, so, you know, so one of the things I did was make that shaft larger than I have done in the past. And that dealt with it to a certain extent until Corey had to advance his film. So well, I noticed, uh, I noticed that some people design things that are stupidly strong for 3d printing. Like they just overkill on the design to make up for that kind of error. And that remind that reminds me of when, when cast iron first arrived, it was this cheap, fast way to make iron compared to hand forged blacksmithing. And, but at first they just copied all the, the cast iron designs, just copied forged designs, but cast iron is very brittle. Forged steel is very strong. And so as a result, everything just broke and it looked, you know, and people blamed the material, but it was just that they hadn't adjusted the design. You have to make things fatter when you make them out of cast iron. Right. Okay. So, so that is one of the things, um, 
One of the things I'm also thinking about is I saw, um, I don't know, one of those, uh, one of the shows, I'm trying to think of um, whether it was Frontline or one of those PBS shows. And it was all about the design of a skyscraper. And I I am pretty sure it was PBS and not Discovery Channel, but I, I could be wrong about this. And this particular um, uh, structure that they had designed was a, it was a, you know, it was a rectangular box of a building that was, I don't know, 80 stories tall or something like that. Well, mm. one of the things that they did was they put inside offset from the outside. So say um, one wall to the center of the structure is say a hundred units at 50 units. They put another um, rectangular vertical structure and those two, two shapes together created a structure that was stronger by a factor of a thousand something like something ridiculous like that and the engineers out there are going no graham it's 10 but you know uh it 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 was it was (laughs) it was enough more of a rigid design that this particular structure could go ahead whereas it was originally designed just as that out exterior structure so Mm -hmm. i'm wondering if what i need to do is design some hollow shapes inside of those other shapes. Yes. To get to get uh, more strength in there. And that's something that I don't know yet. And that's something that I have to discover. The other option of that is I would have to bring it all in house. I would have to buy myself a, a a 3D printer and essentially print it or go to somebody who I know and say Okay, these are the knobs. The knobs get uh, 90% infill. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and uh, then, then they charge me accordingly. I don't have any problem with paying for it. I have the problem of getting it, you know. Yeah. Right. Um, that, you well, know, s- somebody's going to eventually offer that service. I mean, it, it, you know, right. it's going to keep coming up. You know, and, and the other option is, you know, I go to a different material. I find a, you know, I put a... a I don't know. Uh, you know, they make those square metal hollow uh, rods. Do you know what I'm talking about? Sure. Um, yeah. You know, you can get them at, at hobby stores and at, you know, Ace Hardware and stuff like that. And, you know, maybe that that's really what I need to do. And I just need to figure a piece that, that goes around it and sleeves it. But uh, but still, this is well, so. So I, I think re- I think rethinking of... a lot of this stuff makes sense, yeah. though. I think people are busy designing cameras that look like cameras that were made out of metal, and they're making them out right. of plastic. And there's going to be some things that don't quite work out. Right, right, exactly. So, so anyway, that's um, that's the adventures in camera design and production for the last fortnight, um, otherwise known as the Flexopan update. Well, I'm excited to see this thing start to happen. Um, I, I, I've been thinking about it too. Um, and I, I, I'd like to see if eventually if I can make a better roll film holder. And, and for me, that means putting the film at the back so that you get uh, more depth. And, and it means figuring out how you can adjust the amount of advance to whatever you, whatever you want. Um, so, um, that's something that I really, I'm really kind of excited about. And then we talked about um, uh, 
some other things we wanted to talk about. And I just had wanted to insert something into the show, um, which I already mentioned, which is that I went to this show at the Tucson Center of Creative Photography, which is an amazing museum uh, archive. I think it's the largest archive of American photographs in the world. Now, are they the ones who have the Ansel Adams negatives? Ansel Adams Ansel Adams founded it. It's he okay. started it, and yes, it has all his stuff. It okay. has an amazing, amazing collection. But it's also an ongoing uh, enterprise where they they you know sponsor all kinds of photographic stuff as well as collect and display photographs. Um, and it's just a great place. It's free. You can go in. There's always a show or two to to see. And it, oh, this show was from their own archive, so it was just an amazing array of photographs mostly on taken on the American road starting in the thirties. So it had Dorothea Lang and Ansel Adams oh, okay. and everybody, everybody in the show, right there, there, you know, Winogrand, uh, Frank, all these amazing photographers. And something that was really cool was that they, I guess in 1995, they, they paid a Japanese photographer and I've forgotten his name. I'll have to look it up, but he, he traveled the whole route 66 with a view camera and took just fabulous photographs along the way it is just really wonderful. Um, and it made me really want to shoot four by five. You know, it just, it was just, Oh yeah, that's right. You know, <laughs> it does make a right. big difference and a wonderful, wonderful show. But what was, what I mentioned before that was exciting was that there were all these different people with different styles and different approaches Different, completely different equipment, different formats, color, and they had mod- they had a few modern pieces that were uh, digital prints. They had chromogenic color. They had regular, you know, uh, gelatin, silver gelatin, black and white, and so it was this big range of things, but with a constant uh, kind of theme. So you were looking at you were it made it very easy to compare the images um, for what they're worth. And what really left me feeling was what mattered more than anything else was, you know, what the person was conveying. It was all those other details were just either adding or or not adding to the rest of the image. But what really mattered was the subject, was what you were shooting. And in terms of figuring out what kind of camera to make, what you started this very beginning of this episode talking about turns out to matter the most, I think. You know, it's the camera that you have in your hands that you really love to use, that you know how to use, and that you're that you're ready to like just absorb what's in front of you without having to screw around. And, That's what and, matters. And one of the things that I was thinking about, it, you know, I, it was something that I said, which was, um, you know, the the Bronica ECTL is the is the camera in my collection that has taken the best pictures of all of the cameras that I've ever owned. But it's not the one that I like the best. And the proof in that, in that is otherwise everybody would be shooting 16 by 20, right? Um, everything would be 16 by 20 because the detail that you can get with that is ridiculous. You know, I mean, that's, a 16 by 20 view camera would be the equivalent of what? Um, I don't know, uh, 800,000 oh, megapixels? Yeah, there's there's <laughs> nothing know? remotely approaching it digitally, no. Right. It would, it would be absurd. But, yeah, it's also... Uh, in fact, the closest thing I can think of was the giant Polaroid that my sister worked with. Um, right, right. And that thing was just... 
royal pain in the neck. I mean, the only reason anyone used it is they had a full-time technical person who operated it. Right. Right. Such a pain. But but still, I mean, the the results, I mean, you have one hanging in your, in your, uh, hallway, right? Oh yeah. Poster size Um, Polaroid is an incredibly beautiful thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, yeah, it, that is a loss. Let's just say that is a loss um, that may never come back. But um, uh, but yeah, that's that's an incredible loss. But yeah, uh, okay. So uh, s- sorry. Back to your um, to the show. Well, so I just I just to. yeah. So I think that um, I don't I don't know where I want to go with it except to recommend that people go to this show um, and look at. The, this kind of work and think think this through backwards like we've been talking a lot about solving technical problems because we're at the stage where we're just trying to figure out how to make a camera like we're teaching right. ourselves the problem solving part of it but we really have to end up going in the other direction we have to end up starting with well what do i really want to use and work backwards from right. there and and th- and that's what's important um in the right. end um you know, it, I I feel like sometimes we are uh, the Europeans in the Middle Ages who are trying to figure out how the Romans built all those concrete buildings. You know, because um, concrete was gone for a, for a long time. Um, you know, for a thousand years, there was no understanding I, of how to build with concrete. Yeah, I don't think we've even quite gotten there yet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, don't know, well. I don't know any concrete quite as nice as that stuff, but yeah. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, okay, so, so you, you wanted to talk about Film 35? and I, Oh, I really yes, know, absolutely. Yeah, I don't really know anything about that. Okay, so Film 35 is a Kickstarter. In fact, I think it might still be going. I have to unplug my mouse here. Um, and see if it is still going open link. Here we go. Um, it has 14 days to go and it is a quarter of the way. So it mm, halfway through a quarter of the way may not make it, but if you are at all interested in building a digital camera, this may be the way to go. Film 35 uh, on Kickstarter, go go ahead and search it. And what it is, is it is an insert for um, a, uh, a digital sensor in the shape of a 35 millimeter cassette. And then it has like a wing that comes out that, ha- that holds the sensor that is like so- the film. Right. So, but, yeah, go ahead. But I think there's more to it than that. I think there's also a system of mirrors and ground glass. So no, 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 no. That's the other this, one. Oh, That's so there's the other two one. different ones. So I'm confused. So this yes. one is, what's, so is this a big sensor? Like APS-C size? This or? is an APS-C sensor oh. that has an image resolution. It is a 12 megapixel. Um, I'm guessing the idea is that it's an old... Um, well, it's APS-C, so it can't be, um, uh, uh, one of um, four thirds, but it's, uh, no, it's no, a... APS-C is, is, I'm used to using that. I, it's basically, yeah. it's a 1.5 crop. So 
if you 1. put 5, 1. a 50 yeah. millimeter lens on an APS-C yeah. sensor, it's cropped to the, to the same field of view as a 75 millimeter lens on a, on a full frame camera. So it's, right. it's a little inconvenient for the very wide angles, but it's very, it's very workable for just using adapted lenses. And yeah. Well, and, and the thing is that it will have, um, a, uh, it will be Wi-Fi or Bluetooth connected so that it has an app that goes with it. Um, it can say, uh, these are, these are all the specs. Now I am going to say that what they're showing is a 3d rendering. They are not showing a prototype, although mm-hmm. they do have pictures that they say are pictures with it. But, um, you know, once again, um, Kickstarter, uh, right. So, oh yeah, it says it's Wi-Fi. Um, so it saves in JPEG RAW and RAW JPEG. Um, so basically you can use a tablet or a phone as a digital viewfinder, or you can just shoot the camera and be right. surprised by what you get. Right? Yeah, it, well, or you can shoot the shoot the camera and just, um, you know, just as you normally would. Yeah, so you um, can set the, the thing for a certain ISO and just pretend it's film. Right, um, right. And, and just shoot, shoot well, in the, yeah. Now here's here's the advantage. Here is the advantage of this. It has an auto setting. So so this is the idea. If you would drop it in your 35 millimeter camera, and you would just take the pictures that you want. And the other advantage is then you take it out and you put it in your other 35 millimeter camera. Then right. you take it and you put it in your other 35 millimeter camera. Mm-hmm. That's that's um, that's the. Um, the advantage. Let me let me go over the rest of the specs. It has uh, exposure comp- exposure compensation. I assume that that's got to be via the app of minus five EV to plus five EV. ISO settings uh, auto uh, one hundred to twelve thousand eight hundred. Um, now, once again, I'm going to say that that's probably via the app, so you could probably flip it. You know, mid-roll, so to speak, right? Yeah, I think I remember that you can also just set it right on the cartridge. So you, you yeah. In other words, oh, I'm pretty sure you can use this thing without your phone. You know, you can use it in right. a more basic manner. Yeah. Yes. Um. Well, it has on, it has off, and it has Wi-Fi. A little little thing on that, and it has a, a micro SD card, uh, lithium-ion rechargeable battery, of course. Battery life, 150 shots. Not a lot for a digital, but you know what? That's a hell of a lot considering, you know, rolls of film because, uh, you know, uh, so, I mean, you know, that's what five rolls of film, which is not bad. You know, Mm -hmm. generally we're not shooting five rolls of film in a day, um, in one camera. So, so anyway, um, uh, so, so here's what I took away from when I read it and I probably got some of the facts wrong. So you should probably ignore half of what I've said about this because it, I'm going by memory and that's not dependable. But, but what I took away from it is, yeah, it's not going to compete with the latest digital camera, but what it's interesting to me for is as a way to run a bunch of, you know, to, to, to use any film camera that took 35 millimeter film, do a bunch of shooting and playing with the thing without burning any film. So it becomes almost like a, like a test device, um, which would produce useful digital output. Um, but I wouldn't think of it as competing with a high end digital camera, but rather as a way, another way to work with film cameras. And right. That would be the way, way to think of it. But here is the reason why I want to talk about it 
if you want to build a digital camera, this is your sensor and it is taken care of. Right. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things and I, I'm looking at the timeline that they have and they have first mock-up sample 2017 factory supplier sourcing, um, January to, uh, July, 2018 prototype is ready in the mechanical design. And then in, uh, right now, um, uh, September to November, Kickstarter campaign. Then the final app in 2018, 2019, they're giving themselves seven months for final product development and app development. Then in 2019, uh, July and August, finalizing the product and package. Bulk production, um, September, October 2019. Uh, quality assurance and packaging in November 2019. And then uh, shipping in December 2019, which is more than a year away. Um, now I'm gonna now I'm gonna break in. I'm gonna tell you exactly how I would use this thing because uh-huh. it just occurred to me. I keep talking about wanting to make a digital film TLR. This is it. This is it. Thirty five millimeter uh, uh, APS-C. T- TLR. Yeah. With with two you know SLR lenses mounted, identical lenses. You, you you use the app and you've got a camera that you can pre predetermine your exposure using the digital part of it. You can figure everything out about the shot using the digital part of it. And then you can push the button and get exactly that capture on film with the same camera. Right. That that would be basically it's like putting an electronic viewfinder on a film camera if you built it like that as a TLR. Sure. And it, and it would be all 35 millimeter, really common, easy to find stuff. Um, I think that would be a really interesting way to use it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So and you'd still um, and you'd still get a digital version as well out of right, that, you know. right, exactly. So, uh, so right now, um, the price. Let's talk about that. The price for um, the. Hang on a second. Uh, for getting the actual item, oh, sorry, let's see. The film thirty-five um, preview is uh, um, Hong Kong twenty-four hundred dollars, which is about three hundred six US. So that would be what two thirty um, pounds, or uh. It's not much anyway for two for yeah two sixty euros right. somewhere somewhere right in there. So right. I mean, if you if you figure that that's freaking dirt cheap for the core of a digital camera, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, unless you want to actually tear apart another digital camera and do it, or or maybe you know, uh, I'm sure you know uh, there are people out there who want to build it from the sensor up, and you know, more power to you. I, I'm. Uh, you know, I'm definitely, uh, to quote, um, uh, Graham from the sunny 16, I'm cack handed when it comes to that type of thing. So, <laughs> so, um, anyway, uh, it, it's, it's very, very interesting. Um, and I'll put it this way. Uh, I've, there are very few things that have gotten me really excited about the potential from our standpoint of building homemade cameras, 
other than the homemade cameras that, uh, you know, like Ethan, who blistered through his fulfillment um, in, in record time, I... I think that, you know, people should complain about how quickly they got theirs. There's not enough delayed gratification. Um, then there was Intrepid, um, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm talking about fairly recently. Um, uh, but, but, you know, those, okay, so you're talking about cameras that are, the first case, very beautiful. Um, yeah. You know, Ethan's cameras. And in the second case, there's a, a real demand. It's a brand new field camera, which... Right. You know, usually very expensive, even used ones are very expensive. So those were like, there was already a clear demand. This one's a little funny because they're the, the idea, most people who want to use film cameras want to shoot film and most right. people who want to shoot digital want the latest thing. So it, right. it's an, a, it's a, it might have a hard time selling itself because I don't think there was already a big reservoir of people wishing for this thing, except yeah. for, you know, uh, maybe some crackpot inventor types. Um, Although there is, um, we talked about the hipsters last time, you know, there is that idea of, um, you know, you're using a a Nikon F, you know, or, or whatever, Um, or more likely, um, what is it? The, um, uh, the context, context, there we go. Contacts, um, you know, T4. You know, or something. Yeah, the thing is that most of the young people I know who shoot film, they're shooting film not because they love the cameras as much as because they want the analog result. I mean, that's that's really that's why we put up with you know a lot of this. Right, right, exactly. So, so, so what I'm saying is not that it's a bad idea. It's just that there may not be already this reservoir of demand like waiting to be fulfilled. That's all. Yeah, I think that I think that you're absolutely right on that, and and I I think we see that in um in in how much it's funded, and one of the things that I do look and and this is you know um there's risk with um Kickstarter um. And, uh, you know, I mean, just the film Frania, uh, alone, you know, I mean, uh, uh, they're still at it. Film Frania are still at it, uh, mm-hmm. but they haven't been able to, to get to that goal yet. Um, and, um, and, and the, the, the thing about that is, well, it's um, kind of like, it's like new 55. They had a really, really, right. really tall order and it's a a huge complex operation you know it's kind of like going to the moon or something you know right so and and new 55 yeah yeah, and new 55 ended up shutting down um but there's some chance it'll be revived again okay well we can hope yeah um but you know i mean i never got to shoot type 55 um polaroid and i i you know it was just when i started getting back into um, film photography, it was just fading. And, um, you know, the FP 100 B FP 100 C and, and, uh, 3000 B and all that stuff were still out there and it was still being produced, but then, and it was just like, oh, okay, well, I think I'll give it a try. Oh, discontinued. And so I have, a, I have a thought, of, so, I have a thought about that, that it just occurred to me today. So I've followed some of the detail of all of that. And the big problem that new 55 had, and the big problem that uh, some of the new, um, impossible project now called Polaroid film has is they all struggle with the pod. They all struggle with 
the little the little mechanical device that contains the film and initiates the developing process. And that the problem is that to make it precise enough and cheap enough and strong enough, you know, in relatively small quantities with whatever you know maker you can find out there in the world, that's the tricky part of the whole thing. And it occurred to me that I don't know if this is something that's at all practical. I'm not an expert at any of this, but I wondered about the idea of making instead of trying to make these thousands and thousands of inexpensive pods that do this difficult task. What about designing a camera that does that part? And you and you basically just put in the instant film, and you've got a, so people would have to pay up front for a more expensive camera that had the machinery to you know, to, to initiate and spit out the film and make the developing happen, built to a high spec out of metal and, you know, high quality materials instead of in a disposable plastic pod. So I wonder right. about that because think about four by five film that and, comes and with, in an individual what, like, envelope, you know, it's something you could yeah. do. You could, you could provide the film part as maybe even as a single sheet in a light proof envelope that you would just insert and the camera would, would people would spend the money up front for the for the camera taking over the pod function essentially right and and where that would really work is with a back um yes because exactly because it's it's not the camera exactly. it is the back and the pod you know, when back. you're right and, and that could be relatively bulky mm-hmm. in comparison to like a handheld camera um, because pro- yeah, you're already describing what Instax does and we just don't know it. <laughs> yeah. But, well, there could be something, something to that. Um, but you know, uh, but I, I think that that scale, um, you know, is, is something to pay attention to. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, so it's a, it's okay. a random thought based on my not knowing what I'm talking about, but it, right. it might be a solution. Well, I mean, I was thinking about, um, you know, some other examples of that. And you think about the um, inkjet printing world. There are a couple of inkjet, a couple of different concepts with inkjet printing. One of them is that you buy your ink in a cartridge, Mm -hmm. right? And you put that on your your printer and and the ink and the cartridge and the printhead and all that type of stuff all come in and then get thrown out with the next one. Right. Um, and that, and that helps in that you get a fresh printhead every time, which right. is, is one of the reasons why a lot of, uh, a lot of them die. Um, but then, you know, like, uh, at, at work, we have, um, a 40 inch wide, uh, Epson printer that, um, you know, has these ink, cases that are they're about the size of a paperback book and and maybe a little bit longer than a paperback book um that are full of ink that you put in and what you're arguing is going that model as opposed to the full cartridge model exactly um and yeah there that may be the solution um but it is it's a possible solution the question is whether that that's practical to do in an affordable manner or whatever. Right. But your idea is right. right. I, I mean, if you do it as a back, especially as something like Graflock standard, where it opens up, you know, a huge range right. of cameras to, to be right. used. I think it's well, a good idea. The, and, and it would not probably be that difficult to, um, go from, uh, you know, a four by five Graflock down to, 
um, a two by three graph lock. Sure. And, um, and that would open up, you know, and then the hipsters would have to buy RB 67s. <laughs> exactly. There you go. The revenge on the hipsters. Okay. So Not that the RB 67 is, is a bad, you know, here, I'm going to stop a second. I'm going to go on, on, a, on a slight tangent. One of the people I follow on Instagram is a guy named RB 60 Evan. And you know, I love that name. I love that name. <laughs> okay. Anyway, sorry. So I'm, uh, I'm like, I'm very excited about the book that I have this week. So oh, yeah, yeah. Go, I want to go to that. So I went to a wonderful old bookstore in Tucson called uh, Bookman's. Nate, it's, it's a great bookstore. It's huge. Used books. And I found a, a 1974 book on under uh, underwater camera photography. It's called <laughs> Divers and Cameras by Joe Strakowski. And it's this classic kind of little, it's a hardback book with kind of yellow, slightly yellowing pages, a lot of, a nice mixture of um, cartoony line drawings and black and white photographs. But it's an amazing book. It's not a very big book. It's kind of small. But this guy decided to tell the entire story of photography. It, this is an amazing, it covers every aspect of photography. It tells you how to make a pinhole camera at the beginning of it. And it's a, an underwater photography book. So... And there's a very strong kind of DIY flavor, and it's partly just because the equipment in those days was fairly primitive anyway. Um, but there's so much information in here, and not just about underwater photography. It applies to all kinds of stuff. I really like this book. And I, and as inspiration for DIY, and I do want to build some cameras that you can use at underwater or near the surface. Um, but let me write, read you the description in this book of the first underwater camera made in 1893 by a Frenchman named Louis Boutin. He was a professor of zoology at France's Arago Marine Station. This is quoting from the book. He made the first successful underwater photograph in 1893. The extraordinary achievement involved using a wet plate camera in a watertight copper housing whose some underwater weight was 400 pounds. Oh my God. (laughs) So, okay. The so monster, here, wait, no, let me finish. Ahead. This yeah. monster camera required the lift of a 50-gallon wood barrel to offset its negative buoyancy. The feat is even more incredible when one considers that time exposures of as long as 30 minutes were often required <laughs> to make a photographic image. The inventive Professor Boutin also devised the first underwater flash system. An air-filled barrel provided the oxygen for an alcohol lamp kept under... T- watertight by a glass dome. The dome also served as the flash reflector. At the appropriate moment, Boutin ignited the flash by squeezing a rubber bulb, which blew powdered magnesium into the flame. <laughs> this is this is inspiring. I mean, this is something that, you know, <laughs> that anyone can build. <laughs> the, thing, the thing that I'm wondering about is um, what kind of underwater breathing apparatus they used for the mules that it took to to haul that thing into the ocean? Well, you they, know? Sh- they, they show some sort of humanoid in a traditional diving suit, you know, with the lead uh-huh. feet and the and the spherical brass helmet and the and the hose to the surface. What, um, what's was, the name of this book again? It's called Divers and Cameras by Joe Strakowski. And it has so much in it. It's really cool. I, I really like, I mean, it, it's very readable um, and it covers all this very useful stuff on materials and, you know, just how to do all this stuff and on photography. It's really, yeah. it's really a great book. 
Uh, oh, there's um uh oh, what's the the uh, Dover? It looks like a Dover version. Oh, great. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. And it is yeah. So four twenty five in paperback. Perfect. Um, but let me see. I think that there's another. Oh, I had to. I paid eight bucks, but I have an original eight, you know, eight uh, hardback version. So. Is it the one with like a gray uh, yes. a silhouette of a diver and fish coming up? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, yeah. and you can get that. You can get that for forty six ninety nine on Amazon right now. If you want to buy it used, uh, buy it new. You can buy it used for four ninety five. Um, Great. So yeah, 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 yeah. I was hoping to see on the inside of that book. But, um, well, I have a book, so I mean, if you want me to take, I can scan some pages and send it. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, uh, I just, I've I've only started reading it, but I'm amazed by how much it covers. And I feel it's the kind of book that I find uh, like a lot of inspiration. Um, you know, that, that, that giant copper camera already I'm inspired. Yeah. Uh, I will tell you that I'm never going to use it. I'm not a diver. Uh, well, so I'm not either, but I have a thick wetsuit and a snorkel, and I work near the surface. And, okay. And the water in the Pacific Northwest is so hard to see through that you want to keep your camera really near the surface anyway. Unless okay. You're, unless you have lights and, you know, high-tech cameras and so forth. But for my purposes, who I just need a few feet of water to be in a whole other world. I don't need to be at the deep depths or anything, you know. I don't, I don't even have to have my head underwater, really. You know, I, the one I'm envisioning is more like a little boat with a lens pointed down. Um, but it's something that you can take into the water and shoot down down into the water with. That's what interests me. And also the, the, that surface interface, you know, so the, the, the both under and above. I mean, that's a, that's a wonderful... Water is an incredible lens. Uh, it's a great material to work with in, in photography. And it's nice to be able to get right in it. Yeah, so uh, aren't you glad that we uh, we're going to do a short one today? Um, oh yeah, as we roll mm-hmm. in, uh, coming yeah. up on uh, two hours once again. Apparently, we yeah, can't talk to course. each other for less than two hours. So no, um, we don't know how to do that. I do, I do so, have a shout out, and then I'm, I'm yes. all set. Yeah, I just wanted to to mention Ralph Lundval, who's a listener and who posted some photos on our site, and he just posted. Some photos he took with an 80 millimeter and larger lens on an old speed graphic. And I was really kind of thrilled to see this because he got really nice color out of Portra with this and larger lens. And I've got a bunch of old and larger lenses that I'm saving up for when I have a darkroom someday. Now I realize I can just put them on a camera and use them. So... Uh, yeah, that was, that was very helpful. So which to one see. was... Oh, yeah. The 80 millimeter lens... Uh... On two by three cut film, yeah, okay. yeah, the one that the color shot is great, great color quality, nothing wrong at all with that image. It looks really nice, uh, and I think that was a seven eighty millimeter. Um, there's, you know, which is actually for me would be a useful focal length. Um, I'm mostly using a ninety for that kind of thing. Um, now he he did use he did have a speed graphic that has a shutter, so maybe I'm just going to have to break down and get one of those two by three mini speed graphics. Actually, I have my dad's theoretically, but it's in a closet in Vermont and I can't seem to get, uh, get it. But, um, it's, it, you know, that's a, that's a solution to a lot of these problems. It's a camera with a built in shutter. So, okay. Um, I, uh, don't, I didn't have a shout out this time. Um, other than, uh, the ones that I've already done. Um, 
Let's see. Uh, if you would like to get a hold of me, I am Freezer Photons on Flickr, and uh, and I also hang around the Homemade Camera Podcast Flickr group uh, upon a ca- occasion. Um, I am on Instagram as Graham Homemade Camera. I am also available um, if you go to, um, if you want to email me, GrahamHomemadeCamera.com. And uh, and I just realized that I didn't upload our, our last show to the... Um, uh, to that, to the, uh, 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 website, which is homemadecamera.com, but I'll get it. I'll get it this next time. And, um, let's see. And how do they get a hold of you? Oh, let's see. I think I remember on Flickr, I'm Nick Lyle, L-Y-L-E on Instagram, Avinick, A-V-Y-N-I-C-K. Uh, those are the platforms that I, you really, I do most everything on Flickr. Um, and I post occasional photos on Instagram. So those are the main things. And then I guess, what is it? Nick at homemadecamera.com or homemade camera podcast, whatever the email is that our standard email. Right. And, uh, PH Dom, uh, sent us an email, um, uh, talking about, um, the, the shout out we gave him the last time. And I just was looking and he is trying, he's got a Mamiya, I'm just on his site. Oh, he has the 50, he's the Mamiya Press 50 millimeter, which is a lens that, a lens that I have and absolutely love. And he's working on building a camera for it. And I'm, he's a, a skilled woodworker, so he'll make something really good. And we're working together. Um, I'm going to get him some information on flangeback distances and stuff when I get home to where I have the, the camera and lens right. with with me right now. But um, I'm just yeah. wondering. Yeah, yeah, Dom, if you're listening, um, I'm just wondering if you can take off that bayonet mount and shed some of that. Now you well, may so not want to do I, that. I can, to this I can lens. tell you how that works. The, the yeah. fifty, all of the Mamiya Press lenses are mounted in their own huge, heavy, solid metal helical with a bayonet mount on that. Yeah. And in every case, you can remove the lens and shutter, which is essentially a large format lens and shutter, but it's medium format coverage. Right. But it's it's designed just like yeah. a large format, so it's a symmetrical yeah. lens with its own shutter. You can pull that out, and it's invariably much smaller without the helical. But the beauty of those lenses is that when when you keep them in the helical, they're fully interchangeable and right. they work with a coupled rangefinder. So it's it's worth designing a camera that keeps that intact. Um, right. However, I did buy one with a completely screwed up helical. Uh, it came on the camera that I bought, and uh-huh. um, I pulled out. So I pulled off the ninety millimeter lens with with shutter, and it's a wonderful small little compact lens. So I'm going to use that. Yeah. Uh, um, with a different focusing method. Um, so they're, they're, if you can find them with a bad helical and throw the helical away, that's a, a great source right. of lenses. Um, but I would encourage people who use them to, to use that bayonet because right. then you have a, quite a selection of lenses that you can just swap. And right. Okay. Nice. So yeah. on, on this lens, um, is the cocking mechanism the, um, like half moon shape that's on the bottom? Is that the cocking mechanism, or is so there? They're, so they're all different. The the Mimi Impress lenses have different configurations of where the uh-huh. cocking mechanism is, and they all have a focusing lever, an aperture lever, 
and a way to adjust shutter speed. They're actually quite easy to use with one hand without looking once you get used to them. Sure. Um, they're, they're, they're not like a lot of large format lenses are awkward and the controls require that you uh-huh. walk around to the front of the camera and put on your reading glasses and, you know, right. like fiddle, <laughs> fiddle with them. And I'm, you know, that's okay. But these really are lenses you can use from behind the camera with one hand. They're, they're well designed. Right. Right. Okay. Sorry. Uh, we're off on that. Um, and, uh, uh, have we said where, where they can get uh, a hold of you? Yeah, we said that. Okay, we did. It, do it that. might have been misinformation, but just listen to another episode if you're confused. Okay, by yeah, this. absolutely. You can <laughs> uh, you can write to Nick at uh, the uh, President of the United States of America at thewhitehouse.gov. <laughs> no, 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 no. That that won't get to you. That will not. No. Oh man, I'm telling you, it's the failing New York Times again, giving us bad information. If okay, elected, I will not serve. <laughs> <laughs> If forced to serve, I will, uh, uh, I will make fruit loops mandatory. Okay. So, um, yeah. Okay. So let's, uh, thanks Rob. Thank, uh, I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. Uh, thanks to Robbie Cribs of, uh, Soundtrap Studios for composing and allowing us to use the music. Um, as I said, I was listening to our last podcast, um, uh, today. And, uh, this was in another location, not in the shower. And I'm telling you, uh, and that came on and my dog was startled. Couldn't figure out where that sound was coming from. So, uh, thanks Robbie. Mm-hmm.